You're listening to Accounted For, the Canadian podcast that explores the intangibles of every career. I'm your host, Daniel Lee. Hello, listeners. Today is the third episode of the Anonymous podcast series that I'm experimenting with. The field we will be exploring today is management consulting in Canada, specifically uh, as if if you were in the MBB firms, aka that's McKinsey, BCG, and Bain. We talk about the various projects one might experience, uh, the realities of travel projects, the MBA culture, and just many more of the different kinds of myths as well as assumptions that people have about the industry in general uh, from my own experience and also from my guest experience. And to continue on with the mantra of anonymous podcast to allow for the candidness of our conversation, I've, we've made the guest identity anonymous and changed up the individual's voice as well. And trust me that this individual is very well acquainted to this world of management consulting and is a veteran. And if you end up enjoying this different style, please uh, let me know with a note and just go out to the reach out tab on my site, oldmandan.com, and I would appreciate the kind of feedback. Um, I know that some listeners have actually been reaching out and giving me the the feedback on the Anonymous podcast. I really do appreciate it. It really helps get... Um, to really hear about how my listeners, you guys all enjoy the podcast, what you look for, the kind of guests you've enjoyed. And it gives me more ideas on the kind of things we can also talk about in the future. So I really do appreciate it and keep up um, the amazing support that you have all been providing the podcast. And so now without uh, further ado, here is my interview on management consulting in Canada. Hey everyone, welcome back to Accounted For. Today is another anonymous podcast series, um, and today's guest is a professional in the management consulting world in Canada, specifically in the MBB field. So for the non-consultant folks who don't know what MBB stands for, they're practically like the big four of accounting, and it stands for McKinsey, uh, Boston Consulting Group, and Bain. And the reason I will I separated this out from regular management consulting will be revealed more in detail in this interview, but long story short, it is different. <laughs> and so, like always, today's guest will be introduced as Min. Hi, Min. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. <laughs> and so the first question I will ask you is, how do you describe what you do as a management consultant to your parents? Yeah, so I find... The easiest way for people that have never heard of consulting, or specifically management consulting, to understand um, even the you know slightest idea of what we do is to just use an analogy. Because if I start talking about you know business terms, um, strategy, like those things don't mean anything to most people. And so the one that I think resonates with a lot of people, including my parents, um, whom I've used this with, is um, you know it's like you going to a doctor. So if you get sick, you uh, you experience the symptoms, but you're not necessarily going to know what's the root cause of these symptoms. So you go to the doctor, and the doctor you know checks up on you and figures out what are the symptoms causing these issues, right? And so this is exactly what we do. Companies come to us and say, "Hey, like something's wrong. 
whether our revenues are slowing down or even decreasing, um, or you know our profitability in general just has not been great. Um, can you help us figure out what's going on? And so we go in and you know analyze a bunch of data um, and, and tell them what's wrong. Got it. And for the audience um, to have a little more perspective on your set of experiences, over under on three years of experience. Over. Over. Yeah. Nice. Um, all with the same firm. Mm-hmm. Cool. I find that's mostly the case. I find consultants don't move around that often from my experience. Like they usually stay with like one firm for a long time. Or I've had cases where they'll leave, go to another firm, and they'll come back to another firm or they'll go to an industry. So when I say industry, it obviously it means non-professional service basically like going to Coca-Cola and strategy and then they'll even come back to consulting. Do you find that that's common? Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I think if you leave the MBB firm that you're with originally, it's highly unlikely you'll go to another MBB firm. Um, so you're right, like they would just go to a non-consulting company. Um, but if you stay, then typically it's it's a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think even, f- so from my experience in consulting, you, you, know, you have a whole slew of different projects. And I think if, you're on the more fortunate side, you get to experience a lot of different kinds of projects compared to that find the not less fortunate who only have one kind of project style. In your experience, what's the kind of highlight reel? What What is the project that you um, like to tell friends or colleagues or people often about and say, this is this was like the coolest project? So this answer obviously will differ depending on the consultant that you're talking to. Exactly. For me personally, um, two projects come to mind and they both have they both share two similarities the first one is they both touch the consumer and like the end kind of customer um i find that you know when i work on something that i know um someone's gonna be impacted by they can see and feel and touch you know the 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 difference of the thing that i worked on that brings me a lot of joy um so that's kind of, you know, when I think about my past projects, aside from these two, you know, whenever I'm able to say, this is how I've, you know, directly impacted someone's life, whether it's like the way they buy something or the way they make a decision and it's improved their process, that makes me quite happy. The second thing um, these two projects shared is uh, the very digital in nature. So they heavily relied on you know, designing um, a user interface or experience. Um, That's an area that I'm very passionate about, you know, working with technology that, again, is customer facing. Um, So I would say like those two really uh, kind of peak in the projects that I'm really interested in. If I think about the other projects, obviously I've learned something from every single one of them. but I think, you know, learning and, and passion are sort of two different things. And, and so um, you obviously need to consider both when you're choosing or, you know, doing a project. And in terms of the, the two projects that you really enjoyed doing um, that had more of the customer focus or customer impact, um, can you kind of describe 
what exactly is that you did? Like, so was it, would you say that a, if you were to break down kind of like the time buckets that you spend, um, to give an example, was it more like a project management kind of project where you'd spend 80% of your time just in meetings, coordinating things, and maybe like 20% working on decks, so PowerPoint, or was it more Excel heavy and just spending time on spreadsheets and PowerPoint, like the spreadsheets and data all day? So, because I've had, from my experience, um, I have had the whole kind of 180 where I've never touched a PowerPoint in one of like, like a strategy project I did where I only looked at Excel the whole time mm-hmm. and looking at data nonstop. Whereas I've also had projects where I don't touch Excel at all and mm-hmm. I'm only looking at PowerPoints, but it's just making shit pretty mm-hmm. um, and just presenting your meetings nonstop. Yeah. How would you say like your time was split in those kind of projects? So, so it's a good question. My, my answer, like the reason I chose those two, those two projects as the highlights were not necessarily based on the type, like the type of activities I was doing mm. during the project. So, I mean, if I think back, right, the first project, there was a lot of slides. We made a lot of slides, um, myself included. There was definitely some Excel. Like, I just feel like that's pretty standard for a lot of consulting projects. Um, but as I said, like what really gave me um, satisfaction was the topic area. It was like knowing the impact it would have and the change that it would bring um, to, you know, not just the company that we were supporting, but also like their customers, who's basically like you and me and like everybody else around us, right? Um, The second project actually had very little slides or Excel. It was a lot of stakeholder management. There was a lot of, so the second project was very special because we actually built a prototype for a digital app. And it was quite different from a lot of the traditional strategy projects that you would expect in um, you know, a management consulting firm. But I think you know, these capabilities are gonna become more and more prevalent, both at MBB as well as at other consulting firms. Um, if you think about what clients are expecting, what they care about, what like, is top of mind for any CEO of a large company, like understanding how to leverage technology and digital to, you know, uh, differentiate your offering or really, you know, like improve the customer experience is, that's definitely like one of the top things they're worried about today um, around the world. Um, So all the partners, all the firms, they're all getting asked the same type of questions, like tell us how this applies in digital. And in some cases show us, you know, and so I was fortunate enough to be involved with that project. Mm. Um, so in that scenario, there was, again, very few slides. It was about, let's actually build a wireframe of what this app could look like. Let's test the wireframes with you know, the users. In this case, it was, um, it was an internal tool for the company. Um, so a lot, of the, a lot of the users were able to interact with these, call them like draft prototypes um, before we you know, finalized it and said, okay, this is sort of has incorporated all of the feedback and now you're ready to literally have some engineers build the app and, and code and, you know. Oh, so this is, yeah. like, so the app doesn't exist yet. It's more, is it more theoretically, if we had this, this is how you would interact with it? It's Yeah, it's like a front end. Oh, I see. So they were able to, there were different web pages and they could interact, they could click on buttons 
and kind of see the flow of what a user would see if it was a real app. But the data was not live. So there was no sort of real time um, update. Um, so it's not like you could actually see real data and make decisions, um, but it was a concept. Gotcha. And do you find that from your experience with projects that what percentage of them would you say that you actually get to see the end um, or what you did actually impact or actually come to fruition? So for example, like like you, I, I love it when I see my projects come to life um, and the two big, more tangible ones that come to mind are you know, I, I was on a project that helped actually create an insurance company from scratch and I became a client of that insurance company. So that was great. And so that's one that actually worked. Another one was a credit card project where we were trying to create a, create a credit card from scratch. And we went into production. It was so close. I was going to get that credit card. But out of nowhere, the hands that be said, nope, we're going to cancel it. So we stopped all production, burned everything. And that project does not exist anymore. No one even knows about it. Like mm-hmm. deleted everything. I find that for me, for my even like a lot of the strategy projects I did, like I make all these binders, the slides, and everything, and you have no idea what happened to them afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think maybe about twenty percent of my projects actually come to come alive. Um, yeah. Like at least that I can see. Uh, what what's what's your percent? Percentage like. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah. Um, 20 sounds reasonable. I, I can buy that. I think there's also a spectrum, right? So I think when you're working on a credit card, that, that's a very, there's a tangible deliverable, right? So it's a go or no go. Like either you have a credit card or you don't have a credit card. So it's very binary. I think a lot of the projects that, you know, I've worked on and, and a lot of consulting or consultants have worked on, are longer term, three year, five year, 10 year, 20 year strategies, right? And so there's a time component to that. And like how much of what you recommended actually got implemented in like five, 10 years. Like it's very hard to put a finger on it. Um, A couple of examples I can think of where there are tangible outcomes are, you know, if you uh, worked on a private equity due diligence Right, and the uh, PE fund that you advised ended up acquiring, you know, buying the target, and maybe that went, you know, the news went live on Wall Street Journal or something, right? Then that's direct impact. And you say, like, I did that. Like, I analyzed the market. I looked at the revenue model, and that. So, you know, you can say, put your fingerprint on it. Um, but if you know, if I think about the number. Yeah, I would say twenty percent sounds reasonable. Mm. It's very, it's quite low. I would agree with you. <laughs> and you, you, but you mentioned how the strategy tends to be. Yeah, I think ideally management will think long term. But I find I found that um, my strategy projects tend to be very much shorter than. So I think in the consulting world, projects kind of get differentiated as like strategy mm-hmm. or like business transformation and. Usually they're kind. Of, it's not mutually exclusive. I find that you need the strategy component in the beginning, and then you have business transformation afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find like these strategy projects, quote unquote, air quotes, it they tend to be like sometimes very short in length. Like I've had as short as like a four week project, mm-hmm. um, but usually they don't go past like four months. Mm-hmm. Whereas like business transformation projects can go from a year to I know about three, four years. Like I, 
I have colleagues who've been on one client for you know, three years of their career um, mm-hmm. doing very similar things just because it takes a very long time to make sure. changes happen. Like you're creating a shared service or um, just giant process improvements. Mm-hmm. What, is, what is your experience like, from what you see? Um, and how would you say like most projects split for just the consultant that you see in general? Like I would say that 80%, if we did the 80-20, 80% of my consultant colleagues would be on that giant business transformation three-year kind of project, whereas 20% would be doing like the more short-term, um, fast-spin stuff. So I think this is where it's a little firm-dependent. Mm. Um, I can't speak for other firms, but for the firm that I work at, um, it, it's almost like 95 or 100%. Everybody is on the generalist path where they're constantly experiencing different things um, because there's an active effort from staffing to ensure that you're getting a diverse set of experiences. You're not going to learn or grow if you're always just doing the same projects, same clients, you know, um, same capabilities, right? So they, you know, as you mentioned, every three or four months, we have a discussion, we meaning the consultants, with staffing and say, okay, here's how our current project is going, what's in the pipeline? And there's an active conversation of, I've done this before, I'm interested in these things, I need to develop these other skills. So based on those three um, factors, what is kind of the best next step? That's a very consulting thing to say. But what is the best next project for me to both get, you know, ideally balanced between what I'm interested in, but also like ensure that I'm still learning and growing as a professional. Um, the the bar, I'll just say something about um, quick about uh, development. So it's, it's closely tied with what you're staffed on, right? The bar for your professional development rises really quickly. Um, in my particular firm, it rises every six months. So the idea is, at the beginning of your six of six months, you're challenged to do something new or a set of new skills, demonstrate a set of new skills. By the end of the six months, if you're on track, you would have mastered more or less those skills. And, and, they, and then at that point, they'll reset the bar again and then challenge you to do a set of new skills again, putting you outside of your your comfort zone. So it's sort of a never ending, like you keep getting elevated, which is obviously helpful uh, for your development. Sometimes it feels a little bit, um, you know, a little bit tiring just because you're you're like, okay, I finally got the hang of this. Now I got to jump even higher. And then once you get the hang of that, now I got to jump even higher. So, but that's kind of the model that I think a lot of the MBB or all three will adopt. And um, sorry, and just to go back to your original point, so as a result, it's it would be highly unlikely, or I wouldn't think this would be the case, um, where someone would be stuck, like quote unquote stuck, in one client, um, or doing one type of project for like three years. Like I've heard of ten months mm-hmm. for sure. That's probably the upper bound. Uh, three years is way too long because at that point you're like that's all you know and if i put you into a brand new situation a brand new um, problem you're not gonna you know you're not gonna know how to get up to speed or you'll get up to speed a lot slower than someone who's been you know challenged 
three times in the same period that you've been challenged once in 10 months, if that math makes sense. Yeah, so, no, I think yeah. intuitively it, it totally does. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think I, I totally agree with that. And for me, I've, I've never had a single project longer than four months. And, but that I think ruffled a lot of feathers for me to just get off projects that other friends stayed on for a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. Um, but my experience was a lot of struggle with actually actually trying to get the products I want and actually saying no to products I just didn't align with what I want to learn, what I was interested in. Um, because I think sometimes there's like the business component of, yeah, we just need a body here to do this project because you got to make money for the company to bill your hours. Um, and so I found that relatively more on the challenging side to try to get the products that you want. Um, How's your experience been? Like, do, do you vocally, like you talked with the staff and you talk to them, um, did you, do you find the reality of, is that you have more say and you've been able to um, orchestrate, okay, I want to choose this project, I don't want to do this one, and so forth? So Yeah, so, I mean, the reality is there's a lot of factors that get considered um, for who gets staffed on what project, right? And I think... I, I do think, uh, just speaking from my experience, I do think my input was valued. So it wasn't like I said, hey, I'm interested in digital. And then they were like, okay, cool. And then just like, didn't even you know take that as an input and just put me on something. Like I definitely believe um, that they seriously considered my input and tried to make it work for me. At the same time, there's a lot of other factors like just what the business needs. If you, you know, if you're good at a certain skill and a project requires that skill and there's nobody else, right? Every, every, if everyone else is staffed, then in that particular example, like you would be the best candidate regardless of what your like interests are. So I think, um, I think the experience with staffing is different for everyone. Like, for, for example, for you, it was more challenging. For me, I got actually pretty lucky. Like, I got most of what I asked for. And occasionally, like, here and there, they'd be like, hey, so I know, you know, we know that this was not your top pick, but you get to learn these two things, which is still, you know, valuable. And in those instances, like, I trust them. And I say, no, I trust that you've taken my interests um, at heart and you know, this was still the outcome, so I'll just go with it. And so I think net-net, I've been pretty happy with, um, uh, you know, what what I've been able to experience, yeah. And on the, I guess, spread of projects, a big thing for consulting that I think a lot of um, young people say when they apply or want to join is the travel. They'll say, I love travel. (laughs) I want to be a consultant (laughs) because I love traveling. Uh, You know, I was like that. Um, but after doing it and after having been on travel projects, I ended up like telling my staffing manager, no travel for me. Like it just doesn't work with my life. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, what, what's your experience? What do you have to say about, um, the travel life of a consultant? So for me, it all bo- boiled down to expectation versus reality, right? And a lot of these young and, you know, myself included, right? When I was recruiting, um, in undergrad, um, the expectation is like in the movies, like, oh, you're traveling to these 
really cool places and large cities and you're like whining and dining in these cool like rooftop bars with your clients and whatever like you're traveling in first class or something so it just the expectation is a very glamorous version of traveling right the reality is all of your clients care about cost all of your clients um or most of your clients are not going to be in cool sexy cities uh, you know and so the reality is that a lot of your clients are in rural uh in the worst case or like suburban areas where there's just there's not a lot going on it's not a big city and you just have to sort of fly there every week for a couple of months stay at a ho- the same hotel um and by the way while you're there you're not really seeing the city you're literally going from the airport to the client's office working until the night go to the hotel check in work some more sleep wake up go to the client's office repeat that for three days and then go from the client's office to the airport and then go so you know i think um but i think the the education's been better about these things right like i think if you talk to like uh, an undergrad today um who's interested in consulting i i would be shocked if someone was like oh you know i really want to you know i'm in it for the travel like if you have if you've even done a little bit of homework if you've talked to anybody who knows anything about consulting like you should know that is not the you know it's not glamorous you're not you shouldn't be in it for the travel like you should be in it for the learning for the diverse you know industries and and the people they're very smart so anyway that's all i have to say about travel is that it's a i think it's it's always been a big myth um thankfully i think it's been dispelled in recent years yeah yeah, yeah i think um thanks to the internet more people are learning more about mm-hmm. that but yeah like i think to that point when when i experienced it, it just it just became very obvious that, yeah how did, how did i not see this that <laughs> all our clients would be in like like you said more rural areas or just in the middle of nowhere where you land in an airport and you take like a four-hour bus or a four-hour like car <laughs> yeah. to go to the client's site um and yeah like like you said like my experience has been just work hard eat dinner um sometimes with the team sometimes by yourself and go back to the hotel go to the manager's room all huddle down work together go to bed wake up in the morning breakfast together go to client site together work yep and by the way that's the best case scenario right that's assuming there's no flight delays or cancellations so you know for the listeners like the th- i mean i'm sure a lot of people listening have traveled but if you're not in a job that re- requires regular travel you may have forgotten that flights don't always operate on time in fact most of them don't and you know it's it's really painful when you know you're sitting on the tarmac or Worse, even worse than that, you know, you're sitting on the tarmac and they tell you your flight's canceled, so you actually have to get off the plane. Anyway, so there's a whole, like, you know, set of scenarios that just goes downhill um, with travel that, um, yeah, anyway, so the, the bottom line is travel is not that fun. The, I guess the perks is you get to, you know, you get, like, status, which then you can translate to your personal vacations, hotel points, which, again, you can use for your personal vacations, um, but the act itself is is, is not enjoyable. Uh, um, um, what percentage of your project would you say is travel? So if I think back to the past couple of years, um, 
like 50-50, you know, 50 travel, 50 non-travel. And um, it's all been in North America. So if it's like, you know, travel, it's usually either Canada or U.S. Because um, the office is based in Toronto. I think if you're with another firm, like one of the other firms, um, or some of the other firms rather, uh, that could vary, like the amount of travel. It, it has to do with um, the staffing model. So some companies, some firms gravitate towards a, glo- a global staffing model where it's more about the expertise and where the experts are and they'll source them and basically fly all the experts to like one place to work together. Then there's more the regional teaming model, which is, I think a lot more firms are like that where, you know, you want to make sure people are able to get to know each other in an office. Um, also from a travel perspective, it's more sustainable. It's closer. Yeah, I think most, from my experience, <clears throat> too, um, most people tend to think local mm-hmm. travel model. Um, although like I've had colleagues who, I think, have had 95% of the projects be travel and mm. the individual like, exceeded the health limit of oh, the gosh. number of miles yeah. that you were supposed to f- fly. And like, he was like, yeah, I think I have to stop and like try to work from the home office or something. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I didn't even know that was possible. Um, but I think this, sometimes it is, just given the nature of what you got to do. What's the, what's your um, least favorite travel project? Can you talk about it? Anything that popped to mind? Specifically because of the travel? No, or just... Or just in general. Just in general, like the your least favorite project. Like we talked about kind of your two highlight real ones, but mm-hmm. what what's the kind of project you dislike, don't want to see it again? So it's there's you know, there's a project that comes to mind, but it's not because of the project scope or topic necessarily. It was more just because uh, it was early in my career. You know, I wasn't, I didn't really know what I was doing. Um, the particular, you know, um, person I was working with, I was who I was reporting to. Um, you know, that person and I didn't have the best working relationship. Um, we just, I mean, he, he's a great guy, but you don't always get along from a work perspective, right? And you have different expectations. Maybe we, we don't communicate, we didn't communicate as as well as we could have, um, or as transparent as we could have been. So anyway, so that was a pretty painful project because, you know, we would align on, okay, let's do this. I would do it. And then I would present it to him and he would be like, this is not what we agreed to. And I would say, no, it's actually exactly what we agreed to. And I would even pull up emails from him and he would say things like, I don't know, it was very like, it was, it wasn't a very inspiring environment. Um, the person doesn't work with our firm anymore. And, and I'm, I'm not saying like, yo, you know, that's the reason. I'm just saying there's, there's correlation. Maybe, you know, he didn't really, he, he didn't fit in, um, quote, quote unquote, um, with like the way consultants work. And so eventually he left, but. The takeaway for me is that, you know, your experience on a project actually matters within consulting actually matters a lot more due to who you're working with than the actual topic itself. Like 
obviously the topic matters. If you're working on something you have zero like passion for, you're not going to get up in the morning being like, I can't wait to like work on this problem or whatever. Right. But it helps a lot if your, um, if, if the, your team and the people you're working with, um, uh, you get along with like that, that makes a huge difference. Um, so that, that'd be my kind of takeaway for why that's like my least favorite project. Yeah. It's, it's really funny because I think in the heat of things, I had a particular project that I really disliked. Um, just the travel was bad and the work was not interesting at all. But now when I do think about it, sometimes I, I really do miss that project just because of the people that, um, that I worked with just because I don't know if it's just you're just in a shitty environment and then you just all bond. bond. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's like it's like the walking dead. You just find a fucking crew and you just latch onto it and you say, Oh, we're gonna survive together and you do. Um It's like in a war, you know, your squad. You, you have your squad and yeah. you live through the the worst times. And if you live to to tell it, then you can't ever break that bond forever. Yeah, because uh, from that squad uh, I think half of us are no longer with the firm, but yeah when we catch up we talk about them but man those are good times those oh, yeah. Are good times. oh yeah and so it's it's really weird that it's the those, war stories yes yeah, it's, 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 <laughs> yeah. a, it's a project that i hated them that actually i do miss the most sometimes yeah. um and obviously when we talk about consulting we can't leave out the the mba um it's like what i find that i don't know what your experience but once you join then the next thing people talk about all right what are you going to do for your mba like two years later three years later are you going to do an mba we're going to do it at um how common is that in your experience like it, how what percentage of your friends or your colleagues do you say go on to do an mba it, it's pretty high um i think it's falling the percentage of people yeah i think that that yeah. is i'm noticing that too it used to be extreme it was just like 100 yeah. like two years of consulting mm-hmm. and then mba mm-hmm. but and i think especially canada it's falling more so than mm-hmm. the U.S. is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think there's um, there's a couple of reasons, but I think the biggest reason to me, and I don't know if this is true, but just from my observation, um, is the fact that a lot of career paths these days don't really require an, an MBA, right? So if you want to go into tech, like, it's less, it's more yeah. valuable if you know how to talk to engineers than if you know how to talk business. Um, if you want to go into finance, they don't really care about the MBA. Um, it's more about the CFA, right? So I think there's a bit of like migration away from just the traditional general management route or the corporate strategy route, which used to be more popular. Um, and in those settings, the MBA is like more valuable. Um, so that's just been... Again, I don't have like data points to prove it. I do. If I take a step back, like if you work at an MBB and you have this option um, of, of getting a free MBA, a top MBA in the world. Right. They give you a full ride for that, right? Yeah. It, yeah. In general, like if you get sponsored, if you, yeah. Um, it. I, everybody has a different opinion on this, but my opinion is it's not, it's a pretty good trade-off. Like you spend a year, maybe two years, you get a pretty good 
you know, rep, you know, uh, brand on your resume. And even if at the point in time when you're considering an MBA, you don't foresee yourself needing it because of, you know, the industries you're interested in after consulting, your mind might change, you know, in a couple of years. And so in looking back, would you rather have the MBA or not? Like it's optionality. So having the MBA just opens up more doors to you, right? Um, I know I'm going to get like shit on for, for this opinion, but it, again, it's my opinion. Some people will say, well, I'd rather use those two years to get, you know, work experience in the industry I want to. Like, hey, that's totally fair. Um, I think if, if you're not like super clear on what your path is, and you don't have a really clear pathway, um, the MBA is a really easy decision. Yeah. And do you find that from what you've observed, most, what, what's the re- big reason that most people get an MBA like in the MBB firms? Is it just that main optionality being the number one reason? Or do you find that they're looking for something different? I think it's, I, th- I think it's primarily the optionality, but it's also seeing what's out there. Because when you're at an MBA, when you're working at a consulting firm, you're, you're pretty busy. You're not like out there talking to people every day, right? Like you're literally crunching your model, you're building slides, you're preparing for meetings, you're working with your team to prepare these materials. And then you build up to a milestone, a big steering committee meeting or big workshop or big whatever update. And so, you know, your mind is constantly deep in that world. So you're not really thinking about, well, what else is out there? Right. Um, so the MBA was really a great chance to poke your head out and say, huh, like what's, what's around? And without the stress of like in a few days or next week, we have this big client update, right? So it's, it's, it's a stress, well, it's not stress-free, but it's it, actually, it's pretty stress-free if you're sponsored. <laughs> if you know you have a job after a year or two years at the end of the program, you are a lot less stressed than a lot of the other students who are not you know, who are not sponsored. That's true. You're probably there for a really good time then. Like, you just meet friends and actually yeah. Yeah, take your mind off one actual big aspect of... Yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, I, I personally did my MBA. And when I was in the program, it, w- it was very clear who were the consultants who were sponsored and who were not. Because all the consultants would be like, oh, you know, it's uh, classes are over. Who wants to go for a drink? And all the non-consult, non-sponsored people are like, uh, we're doing our projects, we're recruiting, we're preparing for interviews, like, screw you, we don't have time for that. And they're probably like, we got to pay for this, like, Well, exactly, K, exactly. K. And that's the thing, right? So they're also a lot more um, cost-conscious than we are. So anyway, uh, I'm digressing. The point is, I, I think uh, the original point was that, you know, yeah, you go get your MBA because A, you want that future optionality to to say, okay, if I don't want to do consulting anymore, what else can I do with this MBA? The second thing is spending time stress-free, looking at other options, talking, because obviously at an MBA, you get people from all types of backgrounds. So it's like you're doing, it's basically like you're doing a whole bunch of inter- informational interviews within like, a year or two years, right? So you get and you get the unfiltered version, not like the marketing crap that these recruiters try to sell you, right? Of of, of a role. 
Um, and then finally, like the third reason, pragmatically, is people just need a break. After, you know, two years, three years, sometimes four years of just constant grinding day in, day out, like you just, you, you kind of need to soul search a little bit. It's like, what else is there to life than just working on it, you know, PowerPoint decks until like 11 p.m. at night every day? You know what I mean? So it's like chance to take a step back and, and just think about, okay, here, what, what do I want in my life? Um, so from a much more philosophical standpoint, it's, it was also very beneficial. Mm. And do, do you find that most people take that option of going back to the mothership, the, the firm that sponsored them um, after the MBA? Or do, do people in that philosophical journey go, no, you know what, I found something better, and then go down another route? The majority will still go back to the mothership. Um, you do get... Okay, and I would say it's more common that if someone during their MBA does an internship, um, they're a lot more likely to jump ship. Um, because let's say you're at an MBA and then during, between first and second year, you go do an internship at a, a large company like, I don't know, a tech company or something or a venture capital fund, and you really enjoy it. And then... At that point, you have a comparison because then you can say, okay, I know what I'm going back to if I go back. And now I also know what else I could be doing if I don't go back. At that point, the trade-off is like, how much do you like this new thing? Um, How much more do you like it than taking on the debt of paying for the school? And yeah, there are people that definitely was like, you know what, I'll just take the debt because I can't see myself doing another second of consulting. Um, but I, I, I love this new thing. So that does happen, but it's not as common, I would say. A lot of people, what they'll do is, even if they found their passion, they'll first go back to consulting, do the one or two years of service, and then jump ship. Yeah, I think, that, that's, I think that's more common. common. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. From what I've noticed too. Like, And as some people that I speak to, I think everyone's different, but um, who get into the top MBA programs, they'll tell me about how Oh, dude! If I didn't have this brand, I don't. I don't know if I would have gotten in. Like, if I didn't mm-hmm. have this consulting firm's brand backing me, or mm-hmm. the kind of like programs that you guys have to help people getting the application ready. Mm-hmm. Like you think, oh yeah. If I didn't have this, I don't think I would have gotten in. Um, mm-hmm. Do Do you feel that from your experience, or like the help of the pro, like to get into the school? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I definitely value the brand yeah. of the firm. Like, I, 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 There's no question that that put me ahead of a lot of people just to start in the application. Um, I didn't... So I, personally, I didn't leverage um, my company as much as I probably could have um, in the application process, mostly because I wanted it to be a very uh, personal view like my application. Um, so I, I, I think I got like one person to review it, my, my like essays in my application, and I didn't even take his feedback. Like literally he provided feedback, which obviously I appreciated, but I was literally like, if I take his feedback, it's not my real view anymore. It's, I'm like packaging it in a slightly different way that's not fully representative. And so I was like, I'm just going to risk it. I'd rather tell the story from my point of view 
as raw and unfiltered as I can than try and sell these schools on who I am and what I want to do with my life. And that's the risk I was willing to take. I mean, it worked out in the end. But um, again, I, you know, I definitely think that people can leverage their firms and their networks from the firms um, a lot when they're preparing for the application. Yeah, and I think there's definitely that kind of gamification too where I've, I've had colleagues talking about volunteering for causes they don't care about to put on the application and yeah. getting the right projects because some some projects are sexier to put on because you did more meaningful work or you get to kind of write in that I advised mm-hmm. like a C-suite, whatever, mm-hmm. um, even though you're just taking minutes in the meeting room. And do you, like have you have you seen like other people from your experience like do that or like really focus on like getting the right specs per se? And that's what I meant, right? Yeah. Like it it happens all the time. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's wrong. It's not just what I personally believe in. Um, but if that's what it takes to get into the top schools that you want to get into, hey, you know, like no judgment, right? Um, anyway, I, I think, I think like as long as you're willing to accept kind of the trade-offs and of your decisions, that's ultimately what it boils down to. I wasn't willing to accept the trade-off of misrepresenting who I am or what I did um, just to get into some schools. And in the end, like two years later now, I look back and I don't regret a single second of what I did, right? Like I maintained my integrity. Um, Anyway, I feel like this is getting too like (laughs) too deep and too like uh, philosophical, but it's something I care about. And so I considered that in my application as well. Yeah, totally. And I think yeah. that kind of um, intentful approach is, in my opinion, very valuable to have. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that, I? it might just be my bias observation, but I found that a lot of consultants take the one-year MB, MBA route more so than the two-year. Like, mm-hmm. just from my time, like, even just interviewing at the MBA firm, all the people that interviewed me had one-year MBAs yeah. instead of two years. Yeah. Um, is it like, am I correct in that kind of observation that most take that path over like a two-year one? And if that's the case, why do you think it is so? Well, I think, so if you think about the benefits of the one year, by definition, it's shorter. So You don't have long enough break? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, one year is a lot of time. You know, like, if you think about sometimes you take vacation for like two weeks already you feel like okay i'm kind of getting bored like i'm ready to go back and do some work um so one year is actually a lot a lot of time to just take a break and reflect um i think if you think about in my mind i think there's probably something going on where for the two-year programs there's really only like two maybe three that people will be like i don't care about anything i just want to get into this school like there's probably only two or three and then there's a whole slew of two-year programs that people are like eh, like I, 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 like if i get in i may go but then there's like two one-year programs that are really good that almost beat like a lot of the two-year so the math basically works out as like if you don't get into the top two two-year programs then you're better off just 
going to the one year because those are still better than. It, it, this is very. It's not black and white. Obviously, there's a lot of factors to consider. All, a lot of the two year programs are amazing. I'm just saying, if you get, if if you're getting super analytical, and um, you know, you're thinking about prestige, like that tends to be the math that people do. And I I can say that this I can support this <laughs> uh, this equation because yeah. with yeah, like just consultants love analyzing and being analytical, and um, the amount of just blogs and stuff that write about this just even out there like if anyone's even like thought about researching it is yeah like when you say the top two like everyone's gonna know what, yeah. what it is like yeah. and we don't even have to say it and yeah. then there's the two one-year programs like anyone just look at 20 mbb profiles right. and you'll you'll kind of have an idea <laughs> exactly <laughs> who right. it is um or what the two schools are but yeah like i think that's actually been like the kind of math that people run like the ROI calculation and everything. Like, yeah. 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 I, at the end of the day, there, like, as I mentioned, which I'm not discounting, but I'm just saying there's many, many factors, but some certain factors hold more weight than others. Right. And so when, when I hear someone say, you know, like I want to get into this two year program because of X, Y, Z, you know, because they have a better like finance program, or they have a better entrepreneurship program. Like, to me, those are secondary reasons. Um, when you get into the top programs, the really, really top programs, the primary reason is because they are the top, top programs. And even if you were like really interested in finance or really interested in entrepreneurship, you, if you got into the top two or top three, you still go there over you know, the, the two-year program that you originally said, like, oh, they have a, they have a good, you know, entrepreneurship program that's just my view um is there's a bit of prioritization and after a certain point i think um this is going to ruffle a lot of feathers i think certain people tell them you know justify to themselves why they went to this program um and they'll use these other factors but the reality is like if they got into the top three they would just go anyway i think there's no right or wrong answer that's just like my my two cents yeah, and uh, that's funny because um, that's actually one of the advice that um, someone I met on my quest to get into consulting gave me. He was he was saying, just remember that whatever some whatever a consultant will tell you, a lot of it will be focused on helping that person console the, the choices that they've made, <laughs> <laughs> and so try to be objective. And like he was saying, I I will do that to you as well. So be objective, yeah. um, and that's just the nature of the human bias. Yeah. But um. In terms of just what you do then in general, like, you know, we tried, I tried tackling a lot of kind of the myths or just kind of things that people talk about in consulting. Mm-hmm. What what other um, do you think myths or stuff are out there in consulting that we haven't addressed? Anything that comes to mind that you get a lot? The, the one that I, um, I don't know if this is still a myth, but I remember when I was recruiting, people would tell, and people meaning like consultants, recruiters, um, people that knew about the industry would tell me that you're working with, you're, you're advising senior clients, you're advising, you know, you're, you're like high level strategy. And like, it sounds very sexy, right? Then you get in as an undergrad and then you're like, I'm literally just doing Excel all day. I'm never seeing the face of a client. I don't even know their names. Or like, 
I'm working on one very small section of a PowerPoint deck as part of five deck. Like, I think there just needs to be expectation management um, when you are, when people or like consultants or firms are communicating what it is we actually do, like you would actually do. Like we as a firm, we globally from the partners down to the bottom, like we do advise clients, but that is a, it's a very general statement. There's many things that happen in service of that recommendation um, that ultimately probably the manager or the partners are delivering anyway. Um, so I think, you know, and again, like if you do your homework as an undergrad or an MBA student, like you, you should find out that it's not about, it's not just about like advising clients. Like a lot of that revolves around heavy lifting and, and a lot of groundwork that guess what the partner's not doing. So you're going to be the one doing right. So, um, I think that's the one thing that I would probably, um, emphasize a little more, um, or, and ask other consultants to emphasize a little more when they're talking about their work. It, like try not to, I know again, it's the human, it's human nature to want to sound important. Like, Oh, like, I, you know, I advised the senior clients of this, like, Fortune 100 company, and it was one of their top most, you know, strategic initiatives, whatever. It's like, okay, but be honest. Like, what else did you do? Oh, I also, you know, did a bunch of market research and did a bunch of analysis and made a bunch of slides, and that took a long time. Like, 80% of my time yeah, was doing that 95, you know, yeah. and 5% is spent literally tying up the final recommendation. So... I just think that's it, you know, is the expectation management. I'm honestly so happy you said that because I think that's that's the big thing I try to communicate to a lot of people too. And yeah, like I, I remember I'd go to recruiting events and if my colleague just tries to sound too cool about it, I'll not too much. So let's talk about what we actually really did. <laughs> and then I, I usually start stories with like, this is my coolest project. I did some advisory work, calculating the value of a mine and doing renewable energy implementations. And they're like, wow, like kids need to keep that up. And then I go, so that was about 90% of just staring at Excel. And sure, I presented my findings to the director, but what happened before that was running to the print room in the middle of the night and yeah. printing giant posters. And you're the one carrying like yeah. bundles of posters and getting all the binders all nice and you know, hole punched, getting it all together, yeah. carrying all the binders, and you're the one that's all doing that too. But yeah. people don't tell kids that you will be doing this. Like you are not above this at all. Like this mm -hmm. is what we do. Um, it, you know, if I may borrow knowledge, like if you think about in a lot of professions, um, even if you think about like martial arts in the most ancient forms, right? You're not like if you join. Um, uh, like a school or if you join like a program you're not doing the most the coolest moves like on day one you're a lot of times you're, you're like brushing you know you're cleaning the toilets you're doing you know you're um putting away like the chairs whatever for like months before the, the master even teaches you the first move so all the grunt work that you have to do to prove you, that you're dedicated right it's not about like whether you have 
the chops and, and, the, and, and the flexibility or the strength or whatever. It's like, they don't care about that because they want to know that you're committed and you're dedicated. And so, that, you know, in many ways, like, let's talk about the grunt work and let's be honest, but there's actually a lot of truth and value in doing the grunt work. Like, because then you appreciate what it takes to really do good work. A lot of our clients don't understand like what we do, even when we're working beside them. And it's like, they see, all they see is, you know, really pretty PowerPoint presentations and like a lot of great thinking and a lot of great analysis. But at the end of the day, like it's still hours and hours and, you know, of back and forth and trying different things and making mistakes and staying up. You know. So as I think about like the communication, there's actually a lot of value in, in, um, bringing up the process. Um, and it's not just, yeah, it's not just about the delivery, of the recommendation. Yeah. I think, I think the process is really important because yeah. I think you have to understand why you're doing what you're doing. Like you have to understand why you're doing this every day. Like you actually have to understand what you're trying to build. Why? Like I didn't mind doing all these excels and all that. Mm-hmm. I wanted to build a brand as a model. I wanted to get better at it. Like I learned all these macros. Like that was good. I enjoyed it, mm-hmm. but I need, I think I was able to appreciate it because I purposely found a product that would let me do that. Like I wanted that process, but I find, like you said, if you come with unmanaged expectations, like I've had colleagues who get severely disappointed and say, man, I didn't get to advise any CEOs today. Or in two years, I haven't advised a single CEO. And as to, I think um, in, my, in my time in consulting, I don't think I've met a single CEO. Yeah. I think I met a CFO, maybe, maybe yeah. a couple of directors. But I don't think I've ever actually spoken with a CEO like one-on-one, like advising or anything like that. I was in a room. It's like a CFO. Yeah. Um, so in my in my couple of years, I've met one. I've actually talked to one CEO. Okay. Um, I like presented one small thing to him. Nice. You can say now you advise the CEO. Yeah, I, <laughs> I guess. Um, couple of CFOs, uh, but yeah, CEO. Yeah, that's why. Like, I just laugh if I hear a consultant say, you know, partner maybe. If they're oh, a partner, yeah. I'm like, okay, I believe you. He's got to sell. That's Yeah, he's yeah. got to sell. But to be honest, even partners very rarely talk to the global CEO of a Fortune 5. Like, these guys are really, really busy, right? So even then, I'm like, oh, are you sure? But then I would, I would be more uh, inclined to believe. But if you're a consultant, if you're like, even post-MBA, I'm like, no, you did not. Stop lying. How... <laughs> <laughs> uh, would would you say that um like you've talked about how gone to North America you traveled mainly to like North American stuff? Would you say the consulting kind of mindset or work is kind of different in the states, like your counterparts in the U.S. and stuff versus Canada? Yeah, I wouldn't say so. Okay, it's pretty similar. Yeah, yeah, actually, like no difference. Um, the difference comes when you cross continents. Okay. Like Europeans, Asians, um, South American, like that's where styles and culture and preferences starts to change. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I'm trying to think. I've worked with a few folks from like Portugal yep. in Europe, mm-hmm. and 
They're pretty. I don't know. I think they. I remember it was them or the ones from Germany who were like, "Oh yeah, like this is pretty easy. We bust our ass over there." I think I don't remember if it was Portugal or Germany, but one of them has like a really intensive. Um, it's probably Germany. Consulting it's, culture, yeah. Like just, it's probably Germany. Yeah, I think so. It's probably Germany. I think so. And of course, it was like more stressed that we're pa- working past like seven or something, and you're like, "Really? Yeah, working this late?" That makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Um, Have you experienced any that kind of cultural yeah. Um, differences? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, if I think about the world, right? Yeah. yeah. Some of the most hardworking, precise people are the Germans. The Japanese, the Koreans, Singaporeans. Yeah, yeah, those are the ones that come to mind. Americans hustle pretty hard, but they don't hustle like the few that I just mentioned. I find that American consultants, um, the more like the more confidently, slightly maybe like aggressive side, I think Mm -hmm. it's personality wise, like the ones I've worked with. Yeah, just more outspoken. Yeah. Classic American. Yeah. Whereas I find like, for example, in China, like we're, we're digressing a little bit, but I think it's an interesting topic. Yeah. I think in China, there's a lot of cultural and social capital required to do business. So you, like a lot of things are unspoken, right? Like I would not survive there if I went over there right now. Um, um, uh, so just understanding local cultural norms and expectations itself is, is, uh, is a really big thing. I think in, in, in general, like in North America and, and most parts of Europe, if you say if you say X in, a, in an agreement, you say, okay, we're going to do X. Generally, that once it's agreed, all parties understand that we are going to do X. But I think there's, as I mentioned, other cultures where like you say, we're going to do X. And then you walk away and then you're like, wait, I know we said we're going to do X. But what if they mean, what if they expect us to do like X plus Y? Like, we don't really know. So we're just going to do X plus Y just to be safe. <laughs> so there's, there's a bit of like definitely scope uncertainty, I think, in certain countries. Oh, totally. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. That. yeah. 100%. Like, just knowing what I know about like just Korean culture and like, yeah. Japanese culture. Like, yeah. oh, yeah. Totally. Totally. Um, Unbearable. <laughs> as we kind of hit upon like the last, you know, steps of the interview um we kind of talked about the myths but what are the kind of like other assumptions you feel like your friends get wrong about what you do i think okay here's a good one you're gonna appreciate this um I think a lot of people, for whatever reason, a lot of people assume that consultants don't like clients. Like they assume that consultants like either make fun of clients or hate clients or, you know, I've seen a lot of memes on the internet where it's like, oh, client sends you email at Saturday, 2 p.m., you know, weekend is ruined or whatever. Like that, that's not the reality for most of the time, right? I would say in general, from my personal experience and also just observing other, you know, consultants and their working relationship with clients, it's actually, it tends to be pretty collaborative. Like I like working with my clients. I like my clients as human beings. I want to help them. I want to help solve their problems. 
And when they come to me with questions, I don't see it as, oh man, you're giving me more work. No, I see it as like, most of the time at least, I see it as, you know, okay, they don't know, they're struggling with something and they trust that I can provide them with guidance or help them with something. So I actually feel like I, I'm empowered to help them and I, and I feel rewarded when I solve that issue for them. And so I think, yeah, it's a pretty like, I guess it's not even a myth because I've definitely heard certain consultants in the industry being like, oh, my clients are like unbearable. I hate them. Or, oh, I can't stand my clients. Like, I think those are one-offs. I don't think, you know, um, I don't think most consultants feel that way about their clients. Um, now, with that said, I do want to caveat that there are clients that are pretty like, you know, they they almost like treat us. I would even go as far as to say not very well, and treat us as like tools rather than you know professionals and humans. Um, so in those situations, obviously, you need to sort of manage that relationship and try not to get like you know, um, used, quote-unquote, too much. Um, but, yeah, and, and I would say, and, you know, there's no precise number, but at least 80 90% of the situations, I've had very good relationships with my clients. Yeah. Yeah, I think my experience has, I haven't had any negative client mm -hmm. relationships. Um, I actually find that what I liked about consulting was clients actually wanted me there more so, like, they were happier that yeah. I was doing stuff like this. Like you said, it's kind of more collaborative. Whereas, you know, when I was an auditor, it's more they get annoyed when you come and they go, "Shit, it's gonna yeah. get something wrong." Mm -hmm. Whereas it's, it's more, like, we're doing, we're trying to create something together, so it's been more um, collaborative in that sense. I think what I notice is that sometimes the clients sometimes get falsely um, vilified when you're the people that you're reporting reporting to have a difficult time managing that mm -hmm. expectation or mm -hmm. it's kind of more out of like fear where mm -hmm. the manager mm -hmm. comes and says we have to do all this stuff but the client didn't really even say any of that but then the manager said we gotta do this for the client um, but it's actually his or her interpretation yeah right and then because then yep. it, sometimes you're actually closer to the client than the manager could be like you're, you have times yeah. like that yeah. you talk to them and go hey, you know, what, what the fuck is this about man and then they're like oh never said do that yeah and then you go hmm that's the signs of a problematic manager. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess like kind of on the, the closing note, is there anything about like consulting that you feel like we haven't covered that you feel like you want to talk about or we should have talked about? I mean, I think um, whether you know, for the for better or worse, I think a, a big part of this conversation has been around like myths and what's painful about consulting. I guess I want to end on a high note. Um, there's a reason I'm still in consulting and I've been in it for a couple of years. Um, it, it really, it, it's sort of, if I think about my experience and what I've learned and the people I've worked with um, and how much I've grown, it never ceases to amaze me um, how much I'm learning still. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned earlier in our conversation, every time I feel like I've gotten the hang of it, they are somehow magically able to say, all right, here's a brand new role. Uh, you thought this was your world. Let's, let us expand it, 
right? And so your world just suddenly got bigger and what you're covering got bigger, um, which is both scary, but also exciting. Um, and again, once you go through that process a couple of times, you start to realize your, your trajectory, and that's why people talk about trajectory with careers, right? Your trajectory within management consulting is, is very fast. You know, you learn and you grow much faster than you would at a lot of different um, capacities. So that's, I mean, and I know for a fact that a lot of people, a lot of consultants would agree with me on that point. Um, sure, it's painful sometimes or a lot of times, but, you know, for me, I'm willing to accept that trade-off. I think it's worth it. I think the long hours, the sometimes challenging team or client situations um, are worth you know, getting that experience and, and learning and getting better at navigating different business and social um, environments. So, net net, like, uh, yeah, I I would highly highly encourage it for anyone who's like interested. Yeah, and I think know. even when I talk to younger students, um, I. I I find a lot, a lot, and I, I think it makes sense that when you're at that age, when you're just coming out of school, or just even still like in like second, third year, it's hard to know what you want to do, and you have ideas, but you don't know, and, but you're too afraid to test it by committing 100% into something. And like you mentioned how people go to an MBA to, you know, see what else is out there. But even like when you're in consulting, if you can also get on the right project and like actually be very intentional about how you want to take your career path or even just like luck kind of hit you at certain points, like you can learn so many different things. I actually see a lot of how the whole like world's economic engine just works mm-hmm. in by being part of a lot of different businesses. Now the caveat is some people might not get that experience. Like I've known people who don't, but I think it also kind of comes with your kind of ownership of what you want out of your career. Like if you are someone yeah. who's very inquisitive and you want to learn, mm-hmm. then I think you won't have any difficulty actually going into consulting and saying, yeah, I'm going to learn as much as I can about like 10 different industries and mm-hmm. have like a bunch of different projects because that was my experience and I loved it. Like I, I tell people that I think I've had probably one of the best consulting experiences I could have had at my firm compared to like all my colleagues. Yeah. Um, and I think if you're the type that want to take, wants to take ownership of that, you will thrive. Like you will do really well. And yeah, it's, it's one of those places where you just, you just get to learn a lot of weird and cool things. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Daniel, I don't know if you've ever had this feeling, but the one really cool realization that I came to after being in consulting for a couple of years is, do you ever get the feeling that, like, you meet someone for the first time and they tell you what they do and you immediately understand what they do because of all the different industries and the projects you've been on and how different companies are organized and the problems they have to solve? Like, if someone tells you, like, oh, I work at... um, I work in like the credit department of a bank. You're like, yep, I know exactly what you do. I know exactly how you fit into the picture. And if someone tells you like, yep, I'm, you know, managing like constructions at one of these mining sites, you're like, yep, I know. Like, it, that's like a skill that people don't realize they acquire when they do consulting. But a lot of people out there, like when when they ask other people like what, what they do, they don't know what it means to be, a certain role or what it means to be doing something at a certain company. But because like you've seen so many 
different projects, so many different companies, and so many different problems, you can almost like immediately like understand and empathize with another human being like, oh, okay, this is what your job is and this is what you're doing. Yeah, you took the word uh, right, out, right out of my mouth. It's empathy. Like it's the ability to empathize. And I, like, I, like you said, I, I kind of realized it later on too where I think for me it was a combination of consulting and then like kind of digressing. Once you work at a hedge fund and you talk to hundreds of companies, like it accelerates it. And, but I think it's no different from the kind of learning you get to be able to empathize with other people because you know now, like you have perspective mm-hmm. before you didn't know, but now you've learned and that's kind of cured a bit of your ignorance. And now you can actually empathize and actually have a very meaningful conversation. Mm-hmm. Like I'll just be in a coffee shop and I'll meet random people and I can immediately understand what they're talking about. We understand like, you know, oh yeah, you're in the financial markets. Cool. Let's talk about that. Or, oh wait, oh, before that you used to be in like insurance. Oh cool. Yeah. Like I know insurance companies. Let's talk about that. And then you can have like a really lengthy and deep conversation that can actually develop into a relationship and take you further somewhere. And I think, yeah, like it's, it's really cool. I think, it's, I, yeah. It's wild, right? <laughs> yeah. Because if you think about like the majority of the world, and that's sorry, I know we're up on time. I just wanted to make no, this right. last point. The major, like when someone's, a lot of people will say like, oh, I'm in, I'm in, uh, I'm in services. And then not like 80 plus percent of the time, the other person will be like, cool, that's it. Like, they're not going to be, not going to inquire. They're not going to know, know, like, even if this person in services explains to them, like, what exactly what they do, either they don't know what it means or they don't care. But if, if someone told me, right, oh, they were in services, I'd be like, what do you mean? Say more. Like, what type of services? Oh, I'm in, like, you know, corporate services. We deliver, like, uniforms for whatever oh cool so yeah yeah, no i, I get it so your b2b environment your comp your clients are a lot of like big corporations like oh yeah 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 like you get me you know so like like you said it creates this like gateway of empathizing connecting with someone who usually would just assume that the rest of the world doesn't know what they do or care right and so suddenly you can be like no i actually understand you and um, I can connect with you like human to human, which is pretty cool. Yeah, oh, totally, totally. Um, yeah, it's, it's, I would say that is a definite perk. That is definitely, and it's like, it's sometimes I feel like it naturally weeds out people who, like, weeds out people who are not intellectually curious. Like, you, like, it's just people who are naturally, like, you just, you're just thirsty to learn more. It's just, it's like, why? Mm-hmm. Why? Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, like, if you are that kind of person, definitely consulting is for you. Um, cause you gotta do a lot of thinking and <laughs> I, I, man, I, I tell people like, I've, it's different. It's not the number of hours you work in consulting. I, that's, that's what, that's, that was, that was my experience where you could grind for a hundred hours. Like I've done that, but you can actually have like weeks where you only work like 50 hours, but it's intense. You're like, dead it, by like, the end yeah, of the week. You're intense 50 <laughs> yeah. hours. Like you, your brain can't process yeah, it. Right? You yeah. feel even worse than you mm. did if you grinded like a hundred hours. Mm-hmm. Like I have those, I've had those moments, and I feel mm-hmm. like yeah, like it's there's that kind of difference. Yep. Yeah. But all right, cool. This was a fun conversation. It was my pleasure. Yeah, thanks for coming yeah. on. Uh, and yeah, I think our listeners are definitely going to get um, a great perspective on the world of consulting. Um, so yeah, thank you for coming to the podcast. Thank you.
So thanks for listening to the podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please check out other episodes and don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date for the future episodes. Also, I would really appreciate it if you would leave a review on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher, whichever is applicable to you. To see past episodes, you can go to oldmandan.com slash podcasts. Also, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter on my blog, oldmandan.com slash newsletter. You can stay up to date with future podcast episodes that way. And included in the newsletter are my book reviews I write, my weekly article in the related to the domain of self-development systems, as well as seven things I learned throughout the week on being healthy, wealthy, and wise. Finally, special thanks to icons8.com for allowing me to use their music, Tiny People, on the podcast. Great. I will see you all next time. Take care.